So uh, we're back for a full-fledged uh, Regenerative Landscapes podcast with all three of us now. Um, so I guess we'll Cruise start back, baby. Yeah. So we'll start by, hey, Kevin. So what did you do for, for Easter? You went somewhere. No, I didn't go anywhere for Easter. Oh, you didn't uh, actually? I just went, to, uh, I just went oh, to the mountains for my birthday, which is like March 19th. Oh, crap. That was before. Great. Yeah. I'm like, and then, yeah, the day is didn't just really do much. And Mountain was actually like surprisingly busy. Who would know? You know <laughs> we were trying our best to just stay away from everyone else. And we actually brought like vegetables and meat and those stuff so we can actually cook without going to the restaurant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we did lots of hiking and then. After we got back, I just feel that I'm more tired compared to when I left because, like, we climbed lots of mountains and yeah. Yeah, that's typical. And then, but it's good tired yeah. though, right? Yeah, I guess so. And then it's just <laughs> going back to normal life, reality. Yeah. So basically, you'd like to live in the mountains permanently and then you could just. <laughs> yeah, maybe hey, if I get the chance. Live off grid. <laughs> yeah. No one can bother me. So did you see any signs of um, plants starting to grow or still pretty covered in snow out there? No, actually all the snow's pretty much melted, but there's no plant growing. It's just those evergreen species like the spruce and the pine. That's pretty much it. I don't see any like deciduous stuff coming back. Not yet. Maybe I'm assuming pretty soon because it's very warm outside. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it's if it's any different than here, because here things are coming along earlier. It's also really dry for this time of year, which concerns yeah. me. Yeah, like, it's very, very dry. There's almost no snow left now, and it didn't really snow that much this winter. So I don't know, it'll be interesting for those yeah. farmers. I think like all the vegetables and those stuff, when summer comes, I think the price is going to go up. I know. I guess we'll see if we get a lot of spring rain or not, because I know I've had to start watering already. There's no snow cover for even the acclimated native plants and even for getting cuttings. Normally, I'd bury the cuttings in the snow and then process them later, but there's no snow. So all I can do is have a few in buckets and that's uh, it. So, so that's really behind. But um, I guess on the bright side, there are little, especially the woodland plants, the um, more evergreen types like the uh, miterwort and the bunchberry and some of the violas and stuff even are starting to come up. Um, of course, we've got grass and dandelions coming up too. <laughs> Good stuff. So, yeah. So how about you, Dan? Uh, what have you done the last little bit? Uh, nothing too exciting. I mean, I've just been doing a lot of prep work for uh, kind of setting up a little office thing. Uh, an office? Well, the... that's pretty glorious. I, I wish yeah. I had one. <laughs> Again, I wouldn't call it much of an office. It's just a corner of the house with a little table. Hey, um, that's more than I have. I think the dining room, you can't even see the dining room table because it's either got my stuff or Steve's stuff or something on it. So we don't eat here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that and yeah, me and Kevin got approached with uh, doing a project. Ooh, uh, detail, not detail. too many details away because it's not a for sure thing but well just some uh, that, you know generalization you know, somebody gave us um uh what they want to do is they already had a native bed established uh kind of in a front uh area and they want uh to figure out if there's any merit in well first 
they want to revitalize it in some form or another, but po- if possible, trying to even change it up a little bit. So kind of almost expand it a little bit more because right now it's just a little, you know, strip, maybe like three feet by 20 feet or something like that. And oh, a long, narrow yeah, strip. Like, yeah, yeah, because it kind of goes along the sidewalk. And mm. uh, yeah, they're thinking either take that strip that's already established and just kind of yeah revitalize it, make it look nice. Uh, a little more cleaner because it's very messy right now because mm-hmm. uh, I mean there's a lot of quack quack grass infestation there uh, so uh, there's that and then yeah also if we want to kind of do something new for them if they have the budget and want to go ahead with it which we'll is kind of make it more um, kind of expand a little bit more either where it is now or do a completely different site like kind of on the same parcel of land that they're on but kind of put it somewhere else where it's a little more of a showcase mm-hmm. kind of out of field that they have so yeah we're cool and me and kevin are yeah <laughs> kind of learning how how to do design and make designs look pretty for <laughs> clients because i don't think well at least me i know i don't have much experience in that um using these programs a lot like i mean i've used programs like gis but that's not quite the same same with design that's more oh yeah. gis is good i don't know some of the things i learned from taking a gis course kind of have paid off and oh i mean applying to everything uh, this kind of work so yeah and, no, exactly. and, and then art mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure oh, oh, oh. Cool. that's like um uh, oh go ahead yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, been working on that, making a little spot for to do that work <laughs> at home. And um, no, other than that, it's just been kind of, yeah, doing a lot of prep work and designing of my own for my own place in the front yard in the back. And I'm thinking even like the alleyway that I have here, uh, trying to do a little showcase thing mm-hmm. for um, not just our businesses, uh, but just, you know, the idea of regenerative landscapes and native plants and sustainability. So I'm thinking I might do these little, not, not community gardens, but little, um, little ecosystem. Little ecosystems. Yeah. You're talking about that. Yeah. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, Steve, he got a, uh, more for the, um, home renovation front or whatever. He got some program or whatever he's fiddling with because maybe just maybe this might finally be the year that we, uh, do something more with the deck that's been unfinished for the last well basically since ever i came onto the scene <laughs> so yeah <laughs> so if we can uh get uh something going there then it opens up a whole bunch of uh ideas for me about putting a catio out on the one side you can put the barbecue and a gazebo out on it and have uh some native plantscaping going around it and that kind of thing but one step at a time i guess and in the meantime, it's like I've got uh, oh, lots of manure to shovel up from the horses and some yard cleanup. I'm, I'm trying to only clean what I need to as I go, though, because, of course, all the little habitat for the overwintering beneficial insects and stuff in the leaves and everything is good to leave out until um, the, reg- the weather's more regular for them, I guess. Because right now it's so up and down. Would you believe on, was it Easter, Easter Sunday? Easter Sunday. Anyway, so. We went over to our neighbors, and as appropriate for COVID, we were outside, socially distant, on the deck to eat. And uh, it was nice in the afternoon. And then when we were just finishing up, there were snow pellets and wind. (laughs) We're all in true (laughs) Canadian style, sitting out there in our winter jackets, 
and our gloves with blankets and uh, some coffee and hot chocolate. And <laughs> it's like crazy. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, who knows? But yeah, now we're just hoping that um, we get some rain in the works. Otherwise, we're going to have to start hauling water because uh, our well water is high in iron. So you can't uh, use that for too long and expect the plants to do well. So Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All righty. Well, I guess let's get to it. Um, so who has some topics for our, uh, I guess we'll start with the green scene. Welcome to the green scene. Anybody got some green scene stuff? Oh, I do. I do. I do. Cool. Cool. Go, go. <laughs> this one I've had for a while. So I think <laughs> we'll try, try and get rid of it for this week. Get rid of um, it. So. <laughs> it's not garbage, well, is I've, it? I mean, I think I've had this uh, in the bank for about a month now. <laughs> it just kept getting pushed months. off. So, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not very long. Like, uh, but yeah. So the article was, what was it called? Big Carbon Footprint with, uh, with uh, Cannabis Demand. And the source is from hmm. uh, Colorado State University. Of course, Colorado. <laughs> yeah, one of the big That's ones funny. for uh, cannabis yep. um, down there. Uh, but yeah, so they were talking about how in the U.S., the cannabis market is in, you know, I think they say roughly about the tens of billions and has become a large emitter of greenhouse gases. Uh, mainly from indoor processing because you know most of that stuff you're growing it's like a greenhouse but even even more fine-tuned usually with uh, all the stuff that goes into it with the grow lights the watering the you know yeah all the tech maintenance of the plants yeah like all the fancy tech that goes into that because there's a big industry just for the technology alone for cannabis growing so i mean just look at the oh jeez forgetting the name of it already that's by the airport um, oh aurora aurora yeah, yeah just <laughs> just all you know the footprint that that building alone has and then just all the stuff that's within that uh, that goes into that for processing all the cannabis and stuff is mm-hmm. crazy uh but yeah so yeah it's a very uh greenhouse gas uh, intensive uh industry and they were looking at uh how trends are starting to show that uh, cannabis demand as it is continuing to rise uh, as you know more states are becoming <laughs> you know uh, legalizing uh, marijuana because i think just recently did new york go ahead with uh legalizing recreational marijuana i think possibly uh everybody's stuck last... at home with covid so you gotta do something right? <laughs> yeah and well there might be <laughs> a little more to it as to why that happened with uh certain person there but i'm not going to get into the politics of that yeah um but yeah so yeah, there's definitely a big trend. And again, this is all in the States and because mm-hmm. we've had it legalized, what, I think for a few years now, three years, something like that. Yeah, um, but yeah, so yeah, in the States, yeah, the trends are starting to go up a little bit. Uh, and then, yeah, a study done by Colorado State University involved uh, a life cycle assessment of indoor cannabis operations across the U.S., analyzing the energy materials required to grow uh, the product, tallying corresponding uh, GHG emissions. So it's kind of this big effort that they're wanting to look at exactly how much greenhouse gas emissions are being uh, released from these cannabis mm-hmm. uh, production processing facilities uh, in the states that are legal right, uh, right now. And then obviously that's going to just ramp up because every state's going to want to have their own, um, well, state and the 
producers and you know private organizations that want to have their processing facilities in you know as many states as they can because mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a relatively lucrative business usually I mean I think there's been some issues at least here in Canada with uh, Aurora in particular uh, with <laughs> them kind of buying out all these little small cannabis uh, companies and then kind of you know amalgamating it all together and then I think that kind of backfired a little bit because i think they bit off more than they can chew but overextend themselves yeah that's just a broad observation i've had and i'm sure there's many uh people that are smarter than me that can explain that a lot better than (laughs) in this podcast now but anyways uh yeah so what else did they say yeah so sources of greenhouse gases from these facilities came from yeah environmental controls grow lights co2 additions um and yeah, so many other things. Yeah, both from electrical and natural gas power sources. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so with this Colorado State University, what they've done is, or what they're trying to do and have kind of started on is they've created a comprehensive uh, map that shows by county and state how much emissions are being produced from these f- facilities uh, per kilogram of cannabis flower. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I mean, that's kind of the whole summation of, that article wasn't a very big thing, but I just thought it was kind of interesting of Colorado State University doing something like Starting this, that. Yeah, yeah. making like an interactive map, essentially, that uh, I forget if it actually is public, public access right now, because it seemed like it was just a lot of uh, universities that were kind of working together, Colorado being kind of the main one, uh, but trying to get more universities involved within different counties and within different states um, that can kind of pool all their uh, resources Resources. and information together to kind of have this comprehensive thing to show. Yeah. uh, How much greenhouse gases are being produced from these particular facilities. So So, it's it's still kind of in the infancy stage then, right? Like, so they're just gathering the information, but they don't have any data yet to say what kind of trends are happening or how to alleviate some of this greenhouse gas production yet or anything. Right. So, yeah, like I think they have some, but not enough to kind of, But it'll be cool to see in the next probably year or so, hopefully they'll start accumulating enough data from all the different areas. They'll start to see trends and then they can start to make predictions and um, assess, you know, what things these operations can do to reduce their emissions and make things more efficient and, you know, kind of turn it around, hopefully. Yeah, because, I mean, the big thing is I don't think these uh, organizations the uh, cannabis producers i don't think they're required to release um greenhouse gas emissions like to the public like as public statements i don't think i mean obviously you have to send it to regulators i think well again i don't really know too much about uh the epa um requirements for uh greenhouse gas emission reporting um so yeah i think it's it's kind of more of you know people have to these companies and other state universities or whatever uh, have to kind of buy into it or like kind of volunteer to get into it versus it's kind of a forced thing or yeah, a yeah. required thing or well, something that like Colorado state or whatever state university or whoever's doing the research and compiling all the data can just, you know, go to a reference thing by the EPA or something that has all the numbers. Cause yeah, I don't think it's public knowledge that at least that I'm aware of. I no. could be totally and again, wrong, that's but. probably going to be a trend as well as they are in the industry longer and doing more uh, like broad spectrum things across the the country. They'll have to, as these questions come up, they're going to have to answer to them. And so there'll probably be more regulations and standards and 
papers and things coming out, more public releases and whatever. But right now it's really, again, more or less in its infancy because um, even though certain areas have had cannabis for a long time legalized, the, the grand spectrum has not. So it's kind of a learning curve to see what happens on a bigger scale, right? So, but cool. Yeah, because I mean, just looking at trends here, at least, at least in Alberta, just kind of talking with people, it, it, it seems like it's kind of died off in terms of the demand. Well, the novelty is worn off, I guess. And the other thing yeah, is the, so many were trying to get into it thinking they're going to, oh, this is my cash cow. And then like all businesses, um, not everybody's caught, cut out for it. Some will survive, some won't. And now, you know, you're starting to sift through the ones that are left standing are the ones that actually uh, know how to uh, run it and make money. Right. So, mm-hmm. but uh, so, yeah, we'll see. But cool. We'll see. in the, and I guess in the next few years, more information will filter down and um, more uh, ideas of hopefully what they can do to improve the, the emissions for the uh, greenhouse gases would be mm-hmm. good. Yeah. And actually, um, if you're kind of done on that one, what's really funny is I've got an article from Science Daily that kind of vaguely ties into that because it's also about the uh, emissions thing and the global warming and the, the greenhouse gas thing too. So, um, I, so did you have anything else to add to what you, what you were talking about there, or is that kind of a no? I just have topic? another okay. article. So if yours is okay. yeah, it's just kind of funny. what I just said. Then go ahead. Like I say, kind kind of. So basically, um, so this is Science Daily, brand new from today, April seventh. Um, they have been finding out that aquatic ecosystems are the source of uh, around half or fifty percent of the global methane emissions so which is another add-on for the global warming and the all that kind of thing and what you were just talking about um and it's larger than agriculture larger than fossil fuel combustion um they didn't they didn't know i guess until recently how big of a deal the aquatic ecosystems were but now again they've got data to back up these facts um so what I guess what happens is methane traps heat more effectively than carbon dioxide. And so it gets released when aquatic ecosystems are disturbed. So that could be um, anything from fertilizer runoff running into wetland areas or whatever. It could be uh, agriculture like uh, rice cultivation or um, shrimp farms or other areas where quite often the water is sitting for extended periods of time and then once um they start getting in there whether it's to harvest or whatever they're doing it it turns things up and releases all the methane into the atmosphere so i thought that was kind of interesting because i hadn't thought of that i mean everybody's going oh the cows and all this and all that but um here we've got a lot in the aquatic ecosystems but as long as it's not touched it stays there but as soon as you start to stir things up then it gets released right so what's tricky though because yeah like i mean i i almost find uh yeah marine ecosystems to be yeah a lot more sensitive than some terrestrial ones uh that we're kind of used to and how it's it's very hard to rehabilitate and even like uh, restore something like coral reefs it, mm-hmm. it can have you can do it it's just it just seems to be yeah definitely a 
a bigger hurdle to get over with that. And yeah, these are key in <laughs> keeping uh, ocean acidification uh, down, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then, and then, like I say, to find out it's all these. Uh, well, what's what it's been is is more of the the standing water thing. So what they're coming up with now is they're saying for for especially for um, aquaculture. So like the rice paddies, the the fish farms, that kind of thing. If you can fluctuate between flooding and non-flooding conditions, that way there's constant, uh, well, more constant water movement. So the stagnant water doesn't have the chance to build up those methane levels. Mm-hmm. And then, um, of course, reducing the runoff by, you know, not using the vast amounts of chemical fertilizers and things that uh, a lot of the traditional farmers tend to do. Uh, but but that way that can help reduce the emissions as far as the methane goes. Um, so I guess that's the other thing people have to understand is there's more than one kind of emission going into our atmosphere that can af- affect, the, you know, the climate change, the global warming, the whatever component of it you want to say. But we've got the, uh, the CO2, the methane, um, multiple factors going on. But uh, yeah, it just... It makes you stop and think uh, what things we're, are we doing that could have bigger ramifications than we initially thought. And then once you figure that out and pinpoint it, the next step is, all right, now what can we do differently, right? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I thought that was, um, I, again, I, had, I hadn't, I mean, you know, when you go into a swamp or whatever, sometimes you can smell that gassy, that methane kind of stagnant smell right but i had no idea they were responsible for that much of the methane globally and that um by disturbing the stagnant areas you're really churning that methane up into the atmosphere versus if you can either maintain water flow or just not touch it at all that would be the the better thing to do so just get a big aerator and put it in the pacific ocean the atlantic ocean problem solved well except that then you got all the fresh <laughs> then when you do the fresh no nah. no nah. yeah i, Later, I just have visions. i just have <laughs> yeah i just have visions of all these poor little fish going wee, 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 like the spin cycle in your washing machine anyway <laughs> yeah uh i don't know if anybody has anything else for the green scene or yep, i got another one Oh, do ya? Okay, what do you got? Yeah, so this one, a little more recent, I think within the last couple of days, uh, it's called To Intervene or Not to Intervene, That is the Future Climate Question. Uh, and this is out of uh, Michigan State University. And what they were looking at was how climate change continues to be a hot topic in the world as we're seeing more of its effects. So, you know, melting glaciers, rising sea levels, Earlier and longer growing seasons of plants, which can lead to, you know, longer allergy seasons. We've talked a little bit about that in a previous episode. Uh, Reduction in biodiversity. So many other things that are being affected by climate change. So there's this working group. uh, What's it called? Climate Intervention Biology Working Group, which is kind of a partnership between, um, forgetting the main scientist's name, but there's kind of this main scientist that they talk about in this article and with Michigan State. Uh, yeah, a group made up of, well, yeah, I guess it's international. It's a group made up of ecologists and climate scientists from around the world looking to uh, kind of pool all their knowledge together and come up with ways to cool the earth down 
Uh, and then Lots of ice. Out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just throw a couple ice cubes. Good to go. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, what the pros and cons of that would be. Because, uh, you know, we're always thinking with climate change, oh, okay, we've got to reduce greenhouse gases uh, any, any way possible. But, you know, this group's also looking at, like, well, there's always pros and cons to stuff. So even though... Mm-hmm. We have this great approach that might reduce greenhouse gases. There might be consequences for um, kind of implementing this uh, new technology. So the thing that they're talking about specifically, yeah, this group is mainly concerned. Uh, yeah, again, looking at you know these technologies and practices that will help to re-engineer Earth's atmosphere to kind of cool it down. And it's starting to sound like very almost like science fiction. Like there's so many. I can't even think of the movie right now but it's one of those kind of world disaster movies <laughs> and i don't think it was very good what was it called geostorm i think it was i think the premise of that was satellites that is able to control climate was you know intended to be helping to yeah control climate change but then backfired and then causes all these weird weather events you know like crazy storms and whatnot and yeah i don't know i i never saw it so i don't know i've never heard of it <laughs> if i'm even right with that but uh, we'll anyways, but it, it kind of sounds what this article is talking about and what this group's kind of thinking about working on uh, kind of sounds in that realm of what they want to do, um, where, you know, the Climate Intervention Biology Working Group uh, is working on how methods of cooling the Earth through means of reflecting solar heat uh, back into space can work with uh, other methods of greenhouse gas emissions reduction. So, um yeah, what are they called? They call it solar radiation modifications. So yeah, any kind of modifications or technologies they're looking at that will reflect solar radiation back uh, outside the atmosphere into space. Uh, So yeah, this working group um, states that to get the ball rolling on this uh, solar radiation modifications on a global scale, uh, they need to first have accurate data and modeling that can account for variations and variables within the Earth's ecosystems. Um, cause yeah, Which that's a big thing be because there's, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you have to think there's so much variability just within, you know, the microclimate, um, all the different ecosystems and all the biotic, abiotic factors that are working together to keep things going. And that's just, you know, on one particular spot and now, you know, change, you know, expand that scope to be on a global scale mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a lot of data. That's a lot of things that have to come together. A lot of variability. Yeah. Because um, it's not going to be a one size fits all for everything and all these different ecosystems and all the factors within it. It's going to be very tricky to kind of balance uh, kind of accounting for everything that's happening on the globe within these different ecosystems. So, yeah, the big question uh, pertaining to the changing of the Earth's solar heat output is how it will affect ecosystems and the species within them. So modeling has not reached yet the ability to accurately predict the changes that could occur if they were to implement uh, these uh, solar radiation modifications. Because uh, the model in the article that they talk about is a GeoMIP, uh, MIP, which I don't actually really know like specifically what this model is, all the details within it, but basically it is just a modeling program that uh, focuses on the abiotic factors of ecosystems but not really the biotic factors, which is kind of a big deal because <laughs> you're only yeah. counting for, Part of uh, it. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll just make up. So, and, and it's tricky because abiotic, I think is a little bit easier to model, I'm guessing than <laughs> some biotic factors. 
Um, yeah, maybe a little easier varies, to quantify but, or whatever, but no. Yeah. And then, yeah, uh, they say, yeah, while reducing solar heat in the atmosphere could be a great benefit for humankind, we might accidentally accelerate uh, species extinctions. Or something. Yeah, like suddenly you're you're not there tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, so... Hmm? Sorry. Go uh, ahead. I was going to say it's, it reminds me of that when we we're talking about the um, the biological control thing with the uh, the plants and whatnot. So you know you might release a a predator insect or something into an area, thinking that you're going to control one pest insect, and sure, maybe that works, and then something else ends up happening, and and yeah, there's a lot of um, Everything affects everything else, so it's it's hard to predict all the different possible ways something could go, but that's almost what you have to do before you decide to do one of these things because it could just blow up in your face. <laughs> yeah, so the specific approach that uh, they want to integrate um, the solar radiation modifications, uh, what they call it is a stratospheric aerosol intervention. Uh, and the process basically involves like a substance in aerosol form acting as kind of like a cloud that is uh, shielding solar rays. That's uh, like that hairspray. <laughs> yeah, that can basically be tweaked to kind of be like thicker or thinner, um, depending like wherever they're kind of releasing this uh, aerosol. And yeah, as I said before, yeah, it just kind of acts as a yeah shield or barrier for uh, solar radiation. So kind kind of think of it like uh, just a big like volcanic volcanic like a uh, plume almost. Uh, well, like just... kind of a permeable bubble, <laughs> you know, like you're putting up a smoke screen or something all over. But... Yeah. And yeah, the idea is, yeah, blocking the solar rays on the outside. But then the problem with that though, is that it's also blocking anything from, from the surface Escaping. getting out. Yeah. So yeah, it could cause... turn us into an oven and bake us. Yay. Yeah. So, I mean, like it, it's probably semi, it would be like semi permeable. So, I mean, some stuff would probably, come and go uh, through it, but it would be a lot, uh, it would mitigate a lot of that with this cloud. And yeah, it would still be only a part of kind of the whole issue uh, because that only accounts for the solar radiation coming and going, but there's still all this other stuff. Like, you know, you talk about, you know, ocean acidification, all this methane and stuff like that. Like there's all these other uh, issues that are still part of the whole climate change thing that still need to be addressed. So this is kind of one One piece in the puzzle. Yeah. One approach that, uh, we can implement along with uh, other ways of reducing uh, carbon and other other uh, greenhouse gases um, to kind of mitigate those and hopefully eliminate them in some way or another. Because, um, yeah, it says, yeah, last little bit of article states that, like, while the Earth would cool under this uh, kind of aerosol, uh, solar aerosol uh, approach type thing, uh, other functions like, you know, rainfall events, surface UV radiation would be altered. Because now you have this kind of big cloud <laughs> that's yeah. blocking things and not letting things go through. Um, so that's going to affect a lot of, you know, movement of, yeah, like they said, you know, UV radiation, what's coming and going, and then rainfall events. Uh, and then, yeah, processes like acid rain and ocean uh, acidification could potentially be amplified mm-hmm. if there's this big uh, aerosol cloud being uh, placed. Mm-hmm. Bam. Yeah, interesting though. Like, I mean, it, it's it's nice that people are getting creative and trying to figure out possible solutions. Anyway, even if some are way out there and and might not work, it's a start. And then the next step is seeing which ones work. And then the next step after that is 
finding out what ramifications there might be. And then the step after that is maybe finally implementing something. So, but that's yeah. why in the meantime, uh, again, we feel that some simple things people can do are, uh, you know, grow some more native plants, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So speaking, speaking of which, are you ready for the plant adventure guide? Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so Dan, do your thing. Hi, welcome to the Plant Adventure Guide. All right, so um, this week I thought we would talk about the prairie crocus. Um, Little pretty. Yeah, because Sexy. this is the time. Like it, it'll. It's one of the toughest ones. It'll even come through peeking through the snow, which there might be some snow in a few places, but I know here we don't have any left. So it's uh, definitely going to make an make an appearance. A lot of them have been flowering already. Um, it's actually an anemone, not a crocus, not an enemy, an anemone. <laughs> so it, it makes people a little bit confused because the common name, it says prairie crocus, but really it's a, uh, anemone. And then maybe Dan can help me out because it's been known as anemone patents or pulsatilla patents or pulsatilla nataliana. And I don't know which is the most current USDA scientific name for it. That in itself is kind of confusing. These guys figure they'll use these uh, Latin names to uh, make everything the same worldwide. And then they go and change the names. So it really doesn't help. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm used to Pulsatilla uh, Patent. Uh, but yeah, again, I don't know if that's the most up-to-date one. Uh, but yeah, that's the one I'm most used to. But anyway, regardless, if you hear any of those week. names, it's actually referring to the same little plant. Um, as I said, it's one of the first plants to bloom in the spring and comes up even through the snow. It's got cute little pale bluish to purple flowers, and the green uh, plant material is all covered in these woolly little white hairs, which actually help protect it from the frost. Um, and it's uh quite often associated with Easter because, again, it, it flowers and appears around that time and is a symbol of renewed life. Um, it's a short little plant, like it's only 4 to 16 inches tall or 10 to 40 centimeters, depending on whether you're metric or not. Um, and that's including the seed plume. So the seed plumes look like little white feathery poofs after the flowers are done. So the flowers, the flowering plants are going to be even shorter because these little feathery plumes make it taller. Um, it grows on prairie type soils. So in our woodlands, uh, unless somebody dumped it there, it's not going to be present. But it has been in decline of late because a lot of its habitat's been cultivated for farming and development. Um, it will grow in dry open woods, uh, so like meadow areas. Uh, sandy soils, and quite often you'll see it with um, what's that cute plant? Yarrow and uh, golden bean as well. So, have I don't know if you guys have been. Um, I know Kevin said he didn't see anything in the mountains, of course, but out around here, have you guys been out um, hiking about? And have you have you seen any crocuses by any chance? No. No. <laughs> I think they are more common in the grassland area, yeah. right? So well, I know uh, when I lived down south, like by Calgary, we like we had twenty acres, and right on the prairie grassland there, they were all over 
our field. And part of me is kicking myself that's like, oh, I took them for granted when I was down there and I should have taken more pictures and grow more of them because I'm not seeing them as much up here. But I'm sure the farther east you go here, you'll see them as well. Because um, we're right on the, the edge of the boreal forest, aspen parkland. And then you got to go out farther for the actual prairie land. But, but anyway, they are around in pockets. Um, and around, usually around the third week of April in central Alberta, um, you'd see them popping up. But this is an exceptional year. Things are coming up earlier because, as we said, no snow. It's warmer. Um, I've On some of the groups that I've been on, they've been posting pictures of ones that they've been seeing here and there. So I know they're up. Um, they do grow well in grazed habitats, uh, because of course the grazing will remove the surrounding grass as long as they're not like completely trampled into dirt all the time. So back in the day when the bison roamed and whatnot, they actually work quite well with them. Um, did you guys know it's poisonous? I know how much right. you like your poisonous plants. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more Kevin than me, you but your animal. what's that? To human or to animal? Um, well, definitely to human and to many animals. There are some animals that have a completely different metabolic rate than humans, though, that can eat things that we can't. Like I know, um, I don't know for sure about specifically the um, the prairie crocus, but I know for some other plants, squirrels and deer can eat them and no ill effects, and then people would actually die. So that's another thing. If you're going out in the woods or you're stranded somewhere and you've got to do survival 101, don't just think that because other animals are eating it, it's safe because a lot of times, you know, a squirrel goes and eats a poison mushroom. Hey, look, I'm good. And then you're like, I'm dead. So it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, good question. But uh, it is poisonous to many creatures, just maybe not all of them. The, the bird, oh, here we go. Uh, this was farther down. So the birds can eat the seeds and squirrels and deer can uh, seem to be unaffected and will eat them in the spring. So they'll eat the flowers and the bulbs, I guess. And they have no problem doing that. So that's interesting. Um, like a lot of things that we are finding out, it has a mycorrhizal uh, relationship. So it actually grows in conjunction with uh, fungus. In uh, so, so that's why one of the reasons why like uh, frequently tilled soils like farming actually depletes this and ruins it for the uh the little prairie crocus to grow um rude yeah very rude they don't <laughs> overly plow things people um i didn't know this because i know this with fireweed it's one of those ones that uh flowers and comes back more abundantly after a fire but i guess prairie crocus does as well which i guess makes sense because if it occurs in an area where it's more likely to have grass fires on the prairies or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But I did not know that. And other than that, I don't know if you guys have anything to add about our cute little crocus. Um, no, I just like, they are very pretty. They are very pretty. I wish I had more around here that I could see. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying no, to... I don't grow them. Well, I'm trying to grow them, but they're... um fussy little things um oh, they're so easy because the well they because they have a they have a bulb right and then they mm -hmm. also have the seed and anything that produces a bulb 
takes so long to grow from seed. So, but of course we can't go out in the wild and just go digging them up and splitting them up and whatever, because that's not right either. So. Well, because they're pretty, like, I mean, I know they're not in danger, but I mean, are they pretty rare? Well, they're on the, like, like I say, they're on the decline because of the farming and development, just um, trashing the land that they're on. So if you do see them around, no, you shouldn't dig them up. But um, we are trying to collect from suitable areas to get seed and grow them from seed and multiply them that way. But it's just going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. So, like, I know when we were with uh, um, Clark Ecoscience, I think in all the years I was with them, I saw maybe two of them in all the nursery plants. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, they're a little harder. It to wasn't come a by. priority. <laughs> no, and again, they do take a long time, and they're also small, and they're and they're small. Mm-hmm. So unless you catch them right when they're flowering, you might not even know what you're looking at. So mm-hmm. yeah, we'll have to. I'll have to get some pictures to send over to uh, Kevin to post so that people know what what they can look at at different times. Because that's another key thing. Most people they're used to seeing something at its peak, like when it's flowering or whatever. But outside of that. They wouldn't have a clue. So, so yeah. But anyway, that is our wonderful little prairie crocus. Yay. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So, yeah, um, I guess that's possibly it for, uh, for this week's podcast. Um, we'll have some more content, obviously, for, for next week. And please tune in. And I know Kevin will have his little spilly that he puts at the end to uh, ask people to Please like us, subscribe, uh, send some comments to us. You can find us at uh, mmgardens.ca or rescuenaturalization.ca or uh, chat us up on Facebook or Twitter, in Kevin's case, because I can't handle that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's a wrap for this. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Oh, thanks for coming up. Push the button, push the button. This concludes another episode of Regenerative Landscapes. Please leave a comment, subscribe. For more information, go to fescue.ca and mmgardens.ca. 